Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Professor Morton Jervon. We talk about the research behind his book, Poor Numbers, how we are misled by African development statistics and what to do about it, and his latest, Africa, Why Economists Get It Wrong. Morton explains why he was kicked out of two conferences in Africa, as well as the problems with measuring GDP. Other topics of discussion in this episode include how we can use big data to gather economic statistics and whether we should allow companies like Google to do that, as well as whether the IMF and the World Bank should undergo a peer review process regarding their data. Why not check out the show notes and all the links mentioned by Morton in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Morton Jervin. GDP is then the sum of all products and services produced, all income earned, producing those goods and services, or thirdly, all expenditure. You should not have a policy in mind when you collect evidence. Mm. And so for all that kind of stuff with evidence-based policy, well, if that's going to work in any remotely regard, then that has to be some kind of separation about who makes policy advice and who collects the evidence. Otherwise, we know that they're going to shape each other. Statistics is that kind of the archetypal way of generalizing from complex social realities to a very kind of orderly aggregate uh, picture. So without me giving away some, some basic investment opportunities, you have to think through what are the blind spots and what are the things that is not being counted. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, why not subscribe to the Economic Rockstar podcast and you will get access to all previous episodes, including comedians Andrew Heaton and Joram Bauman and multimillionaire Ryan Blair. Hi, Frank Conway here and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honoured to have Professor Morton Jervin join me today. Hi Morton, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. Morten Jervin is Professor of Economic History and Development at the School for International Studies at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. In 2014, Morten was appointed Associate Professor in Global Change and International Relations at Norafrica at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. Morten has published widely on African economic development and particularly on patterns of economic growth and on economic development statistics. Upon the release of his book, Poor Numbers, How We Are Misled by African Development Statistics and What to Do About It, Morton caused uproar across Africa and had been expelled from two conferences. His latest book, Africa, Why Economists Get It Wrong, is now available on Amazon. He's an economic historian with an MSc and PhD from the London School of Economics. Morton, I mentioned there that you were expelled from two conferences. Why is that? Well, it's uh, anybody's guess, really. But maybe the best way to understand it is the kind of uh, the kind of genesis of the feedback to the book I wrote, Poor Numbers. So when it was published, it struck a chord uh, with many observers, many who were already knowing that there was such a problem, uh, and also a quite interesting time as well. I think that if someone said that uh, African economic statistics was misleading and he wrote a book about that in 1995, nobody could really care less. But uh, when I published it in 2013, suddenly a lot of mar- uh, countries were entering capital markets, launching sovereign bonds and so forth. So that the numbers and, and statistics that previously had very little value suddenly uh, was attached to quite big uh, premiums, or risk premiums going one way or another. Uh, so uh, the Financial Times reviewed the book. I was the first to review the book. And uh, they reviewed it under the title, Africa Counts the Cost of Its Miscalculations, which, of course, uh, that kind of uh, very led to the chief economist at uh, the African Development Bank to actually write a response to the book review to the Financial Times, which the Financial Times published, and which uh, Ntulin Kube, then the chief economist uh, at African Development Bank's because rice is real, come and see for yourselves. So you shouldn't worry about the numbers and so forth like that. Uh, there is something deeper going on. So no matter whether the number is four or five or eight, it's anyhow a rice and it's real and so forth. Particularly amused when one uh, clever observer at uh, on, on Twitter 
Peter user in Ghana responded saying millions are already here and we see nothing. Uh, so okay. clearly uh, there is a political economy of growth being missed by this, whether the rice is real or not. But the main message here being that while one agreed that there was some uh, lack of quality in some of the basic macroeconomic statistics, one was very, very careful that this wouldn't in somehow, in some way, harm the credibility of, of uh, some of these uh, states and their statistical offices. And so that was one reason why one would be uh, trying to, to kind of control the message from the book, both. And so my book was published in February 2013. And in April, both African Development Bank and IMF both redid the same survey I did of national income statistics and benchmark years in chapter one of my book and redid and kind of fact-checked the whole chapter and so forth and came to the same conclusions. Uh, and the African Development Bank said that they wanted to, to do this survey in order to comfort investors that there was nothing very much out of the ordinary, whereas the IMF was simply curious about, whether you know, is this something, is this a big knowledge problem we don't know anything about and so forth like that? How big is the knowledge problem? And that kind of self-inspection still continues at the, the IMF, I believe. So initially, the support from there was some support from statistical offices, uh, particularly because they were themselves concerned about how the information they supplied to the IMF and the World Bank was traveled further and so forth. And then when I did research for my book, the director, some many people who worked in macroeconomic statistics didn't even know which of the benchmark years they were using at the World Bank. Uh, World Bank also publishes numbers for countries that do not publish the numbers themselves. There has been disagreement between uh, Ethiopia and the IMF about whether they should use the IMF estimates or to use the official estimates. Burundi was frustrated because they used an old benchmark year, which makes Burundi out to be 40% poorer than Burundi themselves reckon they are and so forth like that. So this kind of attention to the problem they were very happy about. The statisticians who worked in macroeconomic statistics were very happy about the book uh, to begin with because uh, it drew attention to the problem that economic statistics was relatively underfunded in comparison to their counterparts in social statistics and poverty statistics and, and, and uh, demographic statistics that had been gotten a very big f funding boost uh, from the Millennium Development Goals, which was because none of the Millennium Development Goals actually at the, uh, approached directly any economic statistics. And there was no funding push towards doing better in this area. Uh, so that first was thought maybe, okay, finally we get someone who, who pushes that agenda. But then when push comes to show, it was, I think, come down to a, a kind of a worry that, hey, is Morton saying that we are, uh, are deliberately misleading? Why is Morton German doing this? There was also some kind of uh, you know, saying that I'm an outsider and so forth like that. And then not this is a job better dealt with with the African statistical leaders and elders and so forth like that. So it's a mix of, uh, mix of responses. Uh, so then the general statistician in South Africa and his allies in the African statistical community successfully pushed me off the speakers list. First at an event in, in Paris, organized by the OECD in Paris 21. And then in, uh, that was in, April, in May 2013. And then again in uh, September, where I was scheduled to speak at the United Economic Commission for Africa. And again, Paleleola uh, then threatened to pull his delegation and he was the chair of that particular working group. So therefore I was pushed off. So I, I've, I was saying that I do understand it to some extent because it is in the job description, as if it were, of the the directors of statistics to be able to stand up in public and and defend the credibility of the product they put out. Uh, what they didn't do right, I think, was to rather than to embrace and welcome debate, uh, mm. they then instead decided to to push it off. This is something we have in statistics. I, I know in a, an old book, Daryl Huff wrote, it's in the nature of a lot of research that we could be misled by the statistics or even a methodology or the models that we use. But if a country within Africa 
like the way countries in Europe back in the 1930s would have used GDP for the first time. We may not have had the accuracy in terms of the data that we could be using or even the resources that we could use to gather this information. And they obviously have the same or if not similar problems that we would have had many years back. So can they be forgiven about having poor numbers? Because unless they're massaged, that's something that we should be worried about. But if the availability of this information is not there, then proxies or estimates are the only way we could use in order to gather a sense of what's going on in each economy. I think you're right in some sense that, you know, I'm, I'm not, and if you read poor numbers as well, you see there is no like uh, finger pointed at the statistical offices in the African region. Um, when I say misled, I'm, you know, I think about the IMF and the World Bank and, and academic users who download data sets assuming that somehow all these things are facts uh, which are objective and are functionally the same. So if you get a labor unemployment statistic from Finland, that can easily be be compared with the same data from Senegal. And it's not true, simply not true. Mm. And um, so so I I completely share that view. I also talk a little bit about that in the the book, uh, that sometimes we're just dealing with unsuitable categories for some stuff that works very well for industrial economies and maybe didn't work very well to begin with, but works better now, is not always that cultural economy. And as you say as well, I mean, what do we expect? You know, not having known anything about data provision, you just do um, methods, a manual book, and say everyone collect the statistics according to this, then you should expect there to be some kind of variation correlated roughly with income because... The smaller the economic transaction, the higher the relative cost of recording it. So you wouldn't expect small economic transactions. The cost of it is just some, simply doesn't make sense to do advanced financial planning if you're uh, doing shoe signing or selling cigarettes by the one piece at a time. So that's pretty obvious, I would think. There is also some basic kind of scale effects here as well. That if you are in Burundi, then uh, it's relatively expensive to have the kind of statistical office delivering the kind of statistical products that the IMF wants to see on an annual or monthly or weekly or quarterly basis, um, but which is relatively speaking because of the size of the budget and the size of GDP is relatively cheap for, for, uh, for Germany. Uh, so there is some, some basic things there as well. So uh, if we are surprised by the, the kind of the the lack of knowledge through numbers in sub-Saharan Africa, I think that's, uh, you know, the the mistake of the data user, not the mistake of the data producer. Say the the data producer, they know there's a universal method to find GDP. But how difficult is that? And if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what GDP is and how it's typically measured and the problems that we have with GDP. Yeah, so GDP is the most central metric and the most important metric of economic development I know of. I'm not saying it's the most important in terms of it matters more, uh, you know, human rights and infant mortality and so forth like that uh, might be much more important than uh, dollars and cents. But uh, in terms of the way it shapes our narratives, the influence it has on decisions, its frequency of views, particularly in kind of deciding whether you're in a low-income bracket or middle-income bracket, it, it's hard to match it for political significance. Uh, it's also you know, a heavily, heavily contested type of, of measure. Uh, but the basic thing comes from the system of national accounts. GDP is then the sum of all products and services produced, all income earned, producing those goods and services, or thirdly, all expenditure. So you could you could get the size of the economy by adding up wages, rents, and profits. You can get the sum of, of the economy by adding up personal consumption, government consumption, investment, and plus and minus exports and imports. Or finally, by adding up value added in each economic sector. So you add up what is being done in agriculture, manufacturing, mining, trade, transport, hotels, down to governments and and churches and voluntary organizations in the service sector. And add all of this and you get the sum. 
for practical purposes, the data availability is so that uh, really the only way that the GDP is estimated in, uh, in most countries, in particular, so for low-income countries, is to use the production approach. So you try to find as much information you can about what is being produced and try to subtract the intermediate consumption from this in the agricultural sector, in manufacturing, in mining, and so forth like that. And you add it up and you get one sum, and that's the GDP. Now, the thing is that in a country like Norway, you might be able to get the same kind of information every year because most of the information is administratively based. So that means that the Norwegian state can access all personal tax records, all company tax records, or the trade balance, all uh, you know wages and so forth like that. And they can gather all this information on an annual basis and get it read with a quite short time like two and generate GDP on the basis of actual information uh, coming from administrative sources in countries where governments are not collecting taxes uh, on, on the majority of the population where they might not be monitoring all the borders for what leaves and enters the country. Thank you, Uganda, who is only uh, gathering statistics of, in Mombasa. So they know what goes in and out of Europe through the port of Kenya, but they have no idea what passes from Kampala to Juba in southern Sudan. So you're talking about these type of economies. Then you actually, in order to fill these informational gaps in in what is value-added in all of the sectors, you would have to actually conduct a survey where you send out... Uh, You hire a couple of hundred people, you go to a couple of hundred villages and talk to several thousands of people and get all the data into an Excel sheet and you aggregate and so forth like that and you multiply the the sums you found there by the total population and then you get a kind of an appropriate representative national sum. Problem is that that kind of informational flow and exercise can only be done so often. It's on uh, relatively seldom, so that you do not know on an annual basis what the agricultural production is. You have no idea what's the profit margin for someone who's a wholesaler in sneakers or or footballs. You uh, simply do not know uh, anything about how big is the small-scale uh, artisanal manufacturing or mining or so forth like that. But you do know a little bit about export and import. You do a little, little bit about the big companies, perhaps. So basically what you do is that you create a benchmark year, a base year, uh, where you collect the best possible information you have. Perhaps a year you have the population census. Perhaps a year you have the household budget survey. And then from that time onwards, you use uh, growth by proxy. So you use certain indicators to kind of guesstimate what the other size of uh, what the size of the economy becomes year by year. So that's basically the workhorse. Uh, you get a benchmark year, and then you use different proxies: population growth, or you make an assumption that uh, if the agriculture sector is growing, it's the service sector, and so forth like that. It seems to be such a manual process that is undertaken in order to get this type of information, and we have. Well, when I say we have a lot of African countries, they're being connected through uh, broadband so they can bypass what we once had to do was um, create wires and so on. Surely with the likes of Kenya introducing M-Pesa and maybe perhaps Google with the use of broadband, they could take account of transactions and have the big data maybe do all the work that governments would normally have to do and do it quite live and instantaneously and get a, an idea or a proxy as to how the economy is running. Is that possible or is there a control over perhaps freedom of information, not for necessarily freedom of information, but having the restrictions of user data be available to government? Well, I think this is a very interesting and question which is emerging and I definitely a kind of a research topic to watch, I think. So for those of your listeners who are thinking about, they want to do something about data and development and so forth, then this kind of emerging cooperation and conflict between big data and official statistics is, is an interesting area. I think... You know, while we should be, rightly so, we should be uh, excited about M-Pesa and other initiatives, there is also some, you know, sobering uh, statistics on this. But, you know, we know that people say that in Nigeria and Ghana, there is more than one mobile phone per adult in the country. Mm-hmm. But that's partly because some people have four mobile phones, uh, but there's still, uh, yeah. still quite a lot which are uh, not touched by mobile phones yet. So exactly 
that kind of problem you had in official statistics about some people and some transactions being counted and others not will apply with similar kind of intensity in, in the big data sources and so forth like that. So it's kind of can be a bit hazardous to kind of think that the M-Pesa transactions are the universe uh, when you don't know big, how big that universe is and what you're missing and so forth like that. Mm-hmm. That's So that's a basic kind of knowledge problem. There is also basic governance issues. Uh, so for instance, one kind of clever thing comes up now and then is to try to measure economic growth from space. So there are some, some papers out there, Henderson et al., Nordhaus, about whether you know you could capture a light emitted into space and then uh, by looking at the change over time in how much space, uh, how much light is emitted into space, sorry, then you could uh, have a guess about how that relates to economic growth. And indeed, you could estimate the parameters uh, for Germany or US or so forth where you think that the economic growth is fairly well measured and relate that to, to uh, lights and then see whether the, the same economic growth elsewhere. So people have been using that to kind of argue that economic growth is overestimated in Ethiopia, for instance, and mm. so forth like that, because the, the data shows that the growth in economic activity as proxied by light emissioned in space doesn't grow as quickly as they seem to claim in official statistics. But that's a very kind of academic uh, to a, what is essentially a official governance type of problem. So although I think that this is like very useful scholarly approaches and should I'm not uh, kind of... Uh, saying that this is not useful research. What I'm saying is that I think it will be a, a, a long time before the central bank governor in Democratic Republic of Congo makes decisions about interest rates based on how much light is emitted to space as recorded by NASA. I think we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Uh, and rightly so. I don't think the World Bank is going to start producing income, uh, you know, scrapping their indicators and, and or the human development report and just starting reporting uh, with these are the lightest countries in the, in the world right now. And, uh, you know, here's a dark one and this country is getting dark. This one is getting lighter. Mm. It would, uh, you know, it would be create all some kinds of perverse effects. Uh, you know, people should be encouraged to keep their lights on at night. <laughs> yes. in order to, to <laughs> so, so, you know, so simply speaking, there are some things that are knowledge solutions to some kind of governance problems that don't always gel that well. So you have to think about both, you know, okay, so this measure doesn't work. I would like to use this one instead. Which kind of question are you answering? Are you answering the governance question or the knowledge question? That's worthwhile asking. And finally, there is that problem about uh, big data still not being solved when it comes to, uh, to ownership of the data. So partly because of not so good reasons and partly parts of good reasons, the government would like to own their own data and would be hesitant to say, fine, okay, scrap what we're doing about uh, measuring personal consumption every five years with a household budget survey and and PESA will deliver that data from now on. Uh, It would be creating some kind of issues. Some of that is also the, you know, the political institutions protecting themselves, but it's also sometimes uh, kind of a rightful concern about the, the algorithms here. You know, everyone was super impressed by the Google flu trends ability to predict flu faster than the Center for Disease Control in the US in the first wave of flu. And then in the second wave of flu, Google flu trends were completely off consistently overestimating the incidence of flu simply because the algorithm, the basics for the algorithm had changed. People were more likely two years later to talk more about fever in emails and uh, social media than they were two years ago. So therefore the parameters didn't match an algorithm anymore. And so to give up that kind of uh, monopoly of deciding how the algorithm should look like and so forth like that, there are many reasons why I don't think it will happen immediately. Morten, take us back to the earlier days when you decided to do your PhD. And was this something that you discovered while creating a proposal? Or was this in terms of development or economic development in Africa? Was this something you were working on at undergrad level? And perhaps, you know, I, I'm looking at the, your languages. And for your research, you studied or took on the Kiswahili if I can pronounce it correctly, that particular language in order to help you get through your research where you actually went on the ground in numerous countries within Africa to get the research that you failed to get online. What was your motivation to do this particular research? 
Well, you're right. It goes way back to my undergraduate years, actually. Uh, when I was an undergrad in the 1990s, late 19, uh, in, in, in the sorry, in the early 2000s, I wanted at that time there was a lot of discussion about uh, IMF, the World Bank, and structure adjustment programs and so forth like that. So I wanted to write a bachelor thesis on uh, structure adjustment programs and wrote about Tanzania at the time. Uh, so my, my interest in Tanzania and Kiswahili goes back to that time. At some point, I was taking Kiswahili. This was in in Hungary, so I was I, you know, from Norwegian. I learned how to speak English, and from English, I learned how to speak Hungarian. And from Hungarian, I learned how to speak Kiswahili. So at some point in uh, 2003, I was sitting in a Hungarian university, being taught how to speak Kiswahili in Hungarian. So at that point, my brain, <laughs> my brain was, was I was probably emitting smokes from my, smoke from my ears. It mm. was on overdrive. But uh, so that's you know kind of a roundabout way of, of getting there. When I, I completed my program as a bachelor student there, being supervised by a former advisor to Julius Nyerere in the 70s in Tanzania and so forth. Uh, so I was very interested in to, to pursue this uh, economic historical approach. So when I was doing my master's in, in economic history at London School of Economics, I was serving the secondary literature and I would find one author speaking about a year of economic growth or a decade of growth or five years of economic growth and quoting very, very different numbers from some other author talking about the same country in the same year. So when I approached my PhD, that would be, uh, that would be my research question is to, to figure out how come, where do the numbers come from and how, why is it that some data sets quote different numbers than others? And so then, then I started poking around. One of the things I was particularly surprised about, and I write about this in Poor Numbers in Chapter 3 as well, is that the economic growth of, of Tanzania in the 1980s and 1990s is radically different from different places. Penwell Tables has reports a output shock, a negative growth in Tanzania in 1989 of 30-something percent. It made it to the top 10 list of output shocks in the handbook of econometrics by Durlauf et al., Stephen Durlauf and, and John, Simon Johnson and Jonathan Temple. But that turns out that output shock does not exist in the World Bank database, for instance. So I was wondering, where, how can this happen? And so I started out actually by just asking the World Bank at the time, uh, hey, what do you do when there are changes in definitions of GDP? What do you know when there are missing data? What do you do then? And so forth like that. And all the time, the World Bank, you kind of and either sent me back to the manuals, which had uh, absolutely non, non-interesting answers to give me. And I st- kept probing and so forth like that and uh, couldn't really get any answers. Well, the things I found out at, at the time, I thought there was the World Bank kind of being secretive and not letting me know what was going on. But in part, it was because they don't know themselves uh, because the databases work in incremental. So, so there might be one guy updating a country and then another guy comes in and the notes are not well. Sometimes they don't have data, so they call the guy at IMF or sometimes they make a phone call to the central bank in Tanzania and get the number. Someone forgets to put in that this is preliminary and then... Uh, And then suddenly they get the news, hey, Tanzania changed their base year, their benchmark year, and now Tanzania is 30% richer. And then someone says, okay, I'm just a research assistant here. I have time to revise the series back to 1970. And then we just leave a a little bump, a little break in the series in 1969 and so forth like that. So a lot of unaccounted for document trail about how these databases get built up piecemeal by piecemeal. So that's one part. And the other part is simply that when I started asking them, okay, can you send me the underlying data files? Then they actually so told me like, no, that's confidential. We don't share it. So they have to go and get that yourself. So that's when I decided, okay, so I have to actually do the legwork myself here and, and go and do uh, fieldwork. Uh, that time I did Zambia, uh, Botswana, uh, Tanzania, and Kenya. And for poor numbers, my book, I, I then make a, uh, another set of visits to those countries but also including on my trip uh, uh, Malawi uh, and uh, Uganda and uh, Nigeria and Ghana. And more recently, I also did similar type of research, uh, this time for the IMF and the Independent Evaluation Office, where we also visited uh, Rwanda and Ethiopia. 
So the IMF joined you on that last report? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was uh, still not published. So the, the IMF has a independent evaluation office staffed by some former IMFers, some former World Bank's people, and also sometimes they hire external experts. And uh, last summer, they asked me to work as an advisor on an evaluation about how IMF gathers their own statistics. Again, being kind of, you know, the basic question being, you know, stuff like, why is it that uh, Greece had a debt problem, uh, which apparently everyone knew about, but wasn't reported in the surveillance reports, mm. you know? Why is it that Nigeria had doubled their GDP overnight and there was no note on uh, on the previous report to the board about the sustainability of the debt-to-GDP ratio when it turns out the GDP was uh, half of what it should have been and so forth like that. So the IMF board is gen- genuinely interested in how they gather their own intelligence and uh, how they have a quality control or lack of quality control about the data they dis- re-disseminate in different reports and analyses and not not the least um, is the basis of policy decisions. So that report should be coming out by the Independent Evaluation Office. It's still not uh, ready. And so until it is ready, the, so the report is confidential, but it will be uh, available for public reading uh, sometime this fall or beginning of next year, I believe. I recently spoke with Shanta Deverajan in episode 46 of the Economic Rockstar podcast, and he's chief economist of the Middle Eastern and North Africa area. And he does a lot of doing business reports like that within African countries. And he told me that they're encouraged to visit the country and some towns and live with families, uh, experience what they experience and get a feel of either the poverty or or possibly the growth that they're undertaking. And that's very hard to get into a report unless it's backed up by statistics because these type of reports, we need statistics, unfortunately, to get some concrete example of what's going on. But how does a paper like yours, which undergoes a peer review process, differs to a report done by the World Bank where they don't share their data? Is it peer reviewed also? That's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, that's one of the things uh, we were discussing as a, uh, a review, uh, as you know, going forward, whether the data sets should be peer reviewed. One of the recommendations coming out from my book as well, Poor Numbers, is that there should be some kind of uh, not only a quality control, maybe a peer review, but there should also be a, a bigger obligation on the on the part of the data disseminator that if your data is not actually data which is, you know, what is given, but actually turns out to be a projection, a guesstimate, an average from two other countries, a projection from 10 years ago, they kind of note to that effect. And there should be a clearer kind of procedure about uh, denoting whether they're, the numbers that they are now using depart from the numbers they are using in Burundi and so forth. And that would be requiring a different type of way that they handle data at the World Bank. I think also it's interesting to think about the U.S. government, for instance, have, of course, a policy arm, but they also have an intelligence arm, so the CIA and so forth like that, whose job is only to collect information. And the reason why, I I suppose, is that you should not have a policy in mind when you collect evidence. Mm. And so for all that kind of stuff with evidence-based policy, well, if that's going to work in any remotely regard, then that has to be some kind of separation about who makes policy advice and who collects the evidence. Otherwise, we know that they're going to shape each other. And so they might want to rethink that. I think also, as more on a scholarly level, which you're kind of hinting at as well, there is this informal ranking of information. I think that's particularly from economists who would like describe anything which is not a number as anecdotal as if you know a number is also an, an anecdote it's just some the sum of many anecdotes uh, and so there should be no kind of obvious way of deciding that many anecdotes summarized in not a number but summarized in an evaluation and so that's also one of the things i want to kind of emphasize in this book and my, both of my books is that uh, there is this uh, unfortunate distinction and untrue distinction between like uh, 
soft opinions and hard numbers. We're talking about really soft numbers and sometimes judgments and evaluation, which is what academics do after all. Can be, be hard and substantiated, although they're not justified with statistical significance and so forth and regression results. Um, so I think that's an unfortunate way of looking at things. And that means also going forward, I think there's an interesting way that you know, is this kind of, I, I'm writing about that just now, uh, <clears throat> responding a little bit to sustainable development goals and the data revolution and all that stuff. Yeah. It's like an interesting thing that, you know, when we, we all know that poverty is multidimensional. We all know that poverty is beyond dollars and cents. And so we all know that poverty cannot be quantified. Yet, when it comes to actually doing something about poverty, then we say, okay, okay, that's too complicated to put in a speech or in a kind of a target or, or have a, like a, a report on it. So then let's for a minute pretend as if poverty is dollars and cents. So then we talk about poverty as if it can be measured, as if we have all the data and as if it is a dollar sum and so forth like that. And, and as if there is something magical about $1.9 and that there is something qualitatively different with a, with a person who is has one, 1.92 cents instead of 1.88 cents. Mm. And so we, we go around saying that, you know, pretending this as if thing long enough, then we forget that it is as if. And so then we have, you know, we, we are making policy as if we know what we're doing, when in fact we don't. And so there is that kind of shortcut. And that's, you know, well-known statistical law that, you know, if you start using an indicators to proxy something, then eventually the policy will be approaching doing something with the indicator rather than to doing something with the phenomena it was supposed to describe. So that kind of shortcut kind of thinking is dangerous within the World Bank and, and certainly also in the policy world and, and certainly in the academic world as well. The, and uh, yeah. final as well, yeah. I was, uh, it was interesting that Shantaravaja notes this, this kind of will to kind of make country economists immerse themselves and stuff like that. That's not always been the policy of the IMF or the World Bank, rather the contrary. There is a you know, rotation policy so that you shouldn't be in a country long enough. You don't, there is no kind of brief, at least that's what World Bank staff tells me, that there's no like really kind of brief on the the politics of the history of the country they're working with and they rotate it so often. Their fear is that if you work 20 years for the World Bank in Kent, then eventually you'll be so attached to Kenya instead of the World Bank. Yes. So it's a, that's a, a conscious strategy of keeping a separation between their agents and, and the places they're working in to make sure there is some kind of loyalty. So, and that means knowing a place always comes at the, there is a kind of a trade-off there between being knowing a place and being able to, to execute uh, governance from global governance in that local place. Poverty is relative, as you mentioned earlier on, comparing two numbers. And again, I was speaking to Helena Norberg-Hodge in episode 53, where she would visit Ladakh over the last 30-year period. And people there who lived lives, they didn't know that, that, they were, that they were poor until their economy was opened up to globalization. And then they were able to see, in relative terms, how they lived their lives compared to others. And as well as that, when we put a number on the economy in terms of the GDP, it makes them appear quite poor. And obviously, GDP has some failings in itself in that it doesn't measure work done at home, for example, or black market activity. I suppose when you were researching some of your countries, you had a preconception as to what that country would be like in terms of the numbers or the poverty that you were expecting. What was it like on the ground level when you actually went there? Were you surprised? Um, well, it struck me knowing what I knew about statistical procedures, you know, such as the construction sector, the value added in the construction sector in Zambia was measured by the import of cement. And then you just travel around and you see like every little small stone and sand quarry and different kinds of ways of putting things together and so forth and knowing that none of these things were measured. So it's the kind of one, of, yeah. So one of the things that uh, struck me all the time was this, I guess in some sense it's a, a basic challenge of doing social sciences. It's about finding suitable boxes, categories, drawers, uh, that kind of summarizes things and then uh, look at the world, which is none of the things 
fit the definition, but you have to decide whether it should go in box A or box B in order to make sense of it. So statistics is that kind of the archetypal way of generalizing from complex social realities to a very kind of orderly aggregate uh, picture. So this kind of complexity did surprise me. It also how little even people work at the statistical office, but other people as well knew about the statistical office and what they do and what their information comes. And they don't know the the global architecture kind of thing that somehow, uh, and, and even scholars in, I think, undergraduate students, which I meet all the time, get surprised when they when I tell them that World Bank data there is no such thing. They all, most of them, are, are national data which is being recirculated. You know, so the people will be uh, hesitant to use Sudanese statistics because everyone knows you shouldn't trust the Sudanese or something, mm. uh, misgive, some kind of misgiving like that. But be happy to use Sudanese statistics on Sudan as long as it's just been like somehow had a stopover in the World Bank data Excel sheet, then it's fine. It's been cleaned somehow, right. which is the same kind of thinking that, you know, if someone hands you a, a bottle of some kind of brown, sweet liquid in, in an unmarked bottle, and someone said, yeah, why don't you have a sip of this? You wouldn't do that. But if it says Coca-Cola on the side, you wouldn't hesitate. So this branding and, and this, so this very big awareness about brands in the data world and trust according to that and so little information about uh, statistics and basic uh, how you get to know stuff about unemployment, poverty, inflation, and forth like that was striking in many levels, but not only in the places I was visiting, but throughout, uh, all the way to, to Washington, D.C., that kind of ignorance. Could it be fair to say that a lot of the research done out there that we have in academic journals could be quite wrong? Well, uh, yeah, obviously. There was lots of reports written, commissioned reports written about what was required to take Ghana into lower middle-income status. Some of these reports were published a month before Ghana simply announced new GDP numbers and suddenly, ba-boom, they were a middle-income country overnight. So that, that kind of reduced the value of those reports, which was written uh, the day before. It turned out there was no like so-and-so investment in agriculture sector needed and so-and-so. It's just simple accounting procedures. So there's stuff like that continuously being wrong. There's a lot of research looking at correlations between historical factors and GDP per capita today. They might all find some kind of statistical significant result, no matter which data set they use. But it should be striking on some level that there are different countries that appear to be poor and rich in different data sets so that you get a statistical significant result that other countries, they don't drive the, the, the results, not the same group of countries all the time. Yeah, you had a, There's you also gave, stuff which... You gave an interesting lecture yeah. in, in the University of Birmingham where you actually identified three methods of calculating GDP. And there was only one country that seemed to be perfectly correlated in terms of the ranking, and it was the Democratic Republic of Congo being the poorest. So this is exactly yeah. what you were talking about here, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, on that kind of comparison I did there, the average country, if you rank all the countries in different databases from 1 to 45, and the number 1 being the poorest and 45 being the richest, then uh, you'll find that they only agree upon one thing. That's that DRC is the, the poorest. The other, there's big jumps going along on the on the database. Average country jumps uh, seven or eight places, if I recall correctly. Mm. And that means that you're basically, all these kind of income differentials are meaningless if you take this variation seriously. And that's the kind of things I'm talking about here is simply exactly the stuff we talked about before, that the, the databases gets updated on irregular basis and they do different discrete ways of, of kind of making sense of the data, filling out the gaps and so forth like that. And so in the end of the day, panel tables don't really know why they report a minus 33% growth in uh, Tanzania in 1989. And until someone tells them, hey, you really got to fix this, they won't touch it. I was writing a paper myself on Kenya and then I didn't touch the paper. And then three months later, 
I did it again, and then I wanted to download, and I wanted to do something else with the data. So I downloaded the same data again, did a different query, and then suddenly economic growth in the 1960s was didn't look anything like the economic growth in the 1960s that I just downloaded two months ago. Mm-hmm. So I tweeted it at the World Bank Data Group and say, hey, what, what happened here? Why are you reporting such and such growth numbers for these years? And uh, then we got a tweet back and say, oh, we, we're updating our database and did some mistakes. We'll fix it. Uh, so it means that, you know, if any researcher did download it during that time, they're operating. That data set doesn't measure any economic growth in Kenya during that time. It's just some properties of the combination of a couple of data sets and has ceased to have any uh, kind of relation to the economic reality of, of uh, Kenya at that time. So sometimes having the data itself seems to be more important than to, to actually know that this relates to the, to the data. So I think, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And what's kind of striking should be uh, worth thinking about for the readers of this podcast is that I'm saying this about economic growth. I'm saying this about the most basic thing, the most easiest thing to count, something that can actually add up to dollars and cents. Those things vary so much. But then think about the correlates on the other side of the equation, you know, stuff which we like to say saying th- things about like corruption, freedom, quality of governance, um, and so, so forth, other numbers like that. Then you start asking yourself, okay, so what kind of handle on that? Are we actually measuring corruption? No, of course we can't measure corruption. It's a subjective perception kind of thing and, and so forth like that. I'm kind of, at, by approaching the G numbers and their mistakes and weaknesses, I'm making the job difficult for myself because this is the thing we should have a handle on and, and uh, we still kind of treat those things as uh, observational facts as well. Of course, they're being... Uh, how they're actually being generated also needs some critical research. Morton, your research that you've done in your trips around Africa reminds me or has some similar parallels to the investor Jim Rogers who traveled around Asia on a motorbike. And when he traveled around these countries where he wouldn't have got particular data from and it might have been too difficult to get, he was able to observe on ground level how the local or the local economy or the country was actually growing. And he made what he felt were common sense decisions to invest in certain things. So he bought stocks from companies in the local stock markets and land, etc. If you were to give somebody some advice based on some of the, I, I don't necessarily need this to be investment advice, but would you recommend, <laughs> you know, would you, would you be able to tell somebody that a particular country is going to do extremely well based on what's going on at ground level? Well, I wouldn't be much of an economist if I gave that away for free on a podcast. Right? <laughs> but <laughs> but you, you print out uh, well, your you know, journals for free, don't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm not so much of an economist anyhow. <laughs> but, you know, there are other incentives why yes. my employer forces me to do that. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So that makes sense. But it's worthwhile thinking about that, you know, watching these numbers – you, one shouldn't be like blind about accuracy, you know, like going down the thing, is, is inflation overstated, understated, la, la, la. What really matters is what the stuff that is not there, what is not counted, what is invisible. And so when people made investments in mobile phones in sub-Saharan Africa, it's important to remember, no one saw it coming. And if the decisions were made despite the data, not because of them. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one kind of lesson. When I was in, in Uganda, in Kampala in 2010, they were seeing statistics they were producing themselves. The people I was talking to, the Ugandan economy was in decline. But living in Kampala, that couldn't be true because down on the street next door to the official statistical office, all cement was pre-purchased on contracts for 16 months going up. So the economy was booming, but official statistics said that they were in decline. And then it turned out that they checked where, you know, where do we gather our external trades? They gathered it in Mombasa. So what we're picking up is economic fluctuations between in trade between Uganda and Europe. But that had turned out to be irrelevant once they started to check what kinds of quantities of goods passes to southern Sudan, to, to Congo and Rwanda and so forth. So without me giving away some, some basic investment opportunities, you have to think through what are the blind spots? What are the things that is not being counted? And, and Sub-Saharan Africa now is very interesting because of that perspective, because there are several areas where uh, official statistical offices are not being able and not the resource to collect. 
is all the people coming in, McKinsey, Standard Charter, different banks are coming in and gathering their own data generation and having their own data sets. So knowing something that other people don't know, a lot of smart startups trying to gather big data, as we talked about, to kind of get a shortcut to knowing stuff about economic trends before the official statistics reflect it. So there are certainly lots of $100 bills lying around on these sidewalks, despite what the economic theory would, would have you think. Morten, can I ask you a few quickfire questions before we go? Yeah, okay. What internet resource would you like to recommend to our listeners? What I think is particularly interesting now, which the World Bank does, is that if you go to the World Bank data catalog, you can also now download older versions of the World Development Database. Neil Phantom, who now runs the data group at the World Bank, it is he's trying to show that you know data is not objective facts; they keep changing and so forth like that. So I think that's a wonderful resource for checking into how Nigeria looked before and after the rebasing and so forth like that. So. I'd recommend the, the World Bank in that respect. They're also doing better with the actually detailing a little bit more of the metadata. That means which countries had a household budget survey, which country had a population census and so forth. I would be hesitant about uh, doing any research, uh, downloading secondary data sets, which are not recording information from the primary source. So I will go to the World Bank. Uh, they're the, doing the best right now. But as I noted several times, there are still some things they should be doing better. Since we had recently the Back to the Future Day on the 21st of October, if you could step into DeLorean, where would you go in the past and what economist would you like to speak with? <laughs> I would go and be uh, William Stolper, uh, who was working in Nigeria in the 50s and 60s and uh, who wrote the book Development Planning Without Facts. Oh. I think that was... Uh, a very interesting period to be an economist and a development economist, coming very consciously with the, the fact that I have some tools, I have some stuff, some statistics and stuff like that. It doesn't really match the reality I'm operating with, but here I'm going to have an intellectual open conversation about what works and what doesn't. Uh, so that, it, you know, the, I think development economics was particularly interesting uh, in the 50s and the 60s when foundations were being made. As we speak, you're in Nairobi at a conference, and you mentioned to me that you wouldn't be playing golf. You'd rather talk to me, perhaps, on this podcast. But do you have any personal habits that helps you get things done? Because you have three books, you have a lot of papers, and you travel a lot to go to conferences as well as your, your work teaching. Yeah, I think making everything count in terms of if you write something, make sure it's going somewhere. If you prepare a lecture to speak about something, make sure you have an idea about how that can become a publishable unit. And, uh, you know, make sure as an academic um, working is important as well, not to think that working long hours is the key. It's about being effective and making the most out of the hours you have. I learned this after now I have two young children. So when I have 45 minutes to get something done, get it done and uh, start writing early. It's important that you, you, because you have this awareness about where things are going uh, and what you're trying to figure out, it's important to start the mental process by starting to write early. So try to write as much as you can at all times because the brain will process those in the subconscious processing of, of data. So suddenly you wake up one day and you know exactly how to write that paragraph or exactly how to explain uh, the best way of explaining some surprising results or so forth like that. Yeah, so and with the regards to teaching, to make sure that you are very, very careful about your schedule, that there are some days of the week you make time for teaching and students, and others you, you don't. So make sure that, because both universities and students would like to get as much out of you in terms of, of teaching. At the end of the day, they're going to evaluate you as to how you written. And uh, so therefore, it's important to, to make sure you give yourself time to Morton, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Thank you very much. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation very much myself. And they can find you at mortongervin.com? That's where uh, everything I do is recorded there. You can find all the links to Morton at economicrockstar.com forward slash mortongervin. Morton, I'll have all the links and the show notes up on the page and with all links to your book and to your website. You are an economic rock star. Thank you for being so generous with your time. 
Thank you, Frank. Yay!